I'm Daniel Robison, and welcome to WFIU's Profiles. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers to the WFIU audience. Our guest today is Alan Dale Olson. Many of you may know him as the esteemed wine writer that runs the popular HoosierWineCellar.com. But in addition to that, Alan has been a gravedigger, baseball player, worked for the National Education Association and the U.S. Defense Department schools in Europe. He's a published author, and he's also served as the director of the Southern Indiana Center for the Arts. Obviously, there's a lot to get to, and I'm sure I've left many things out. But first, let me welcome you to the show, Mr. Olson. Thank you, Daniel. Let's uh, start off talking about wine, since that's uh, what you do mostly these days. Uh, as someone who has lived around the world and done many different jobs, when along the way did you get into wine? Uh, where did it start? You know, I hate to have to say this, but my gray head would probably verify it anyway. I first met wine in Germany during the occupation right after World War II. I grew up in rural Indiana and right after the prohibition had ended, and a lot of us Hoosiers were still taking pride that in our county we couldn't buy any alcoholic beverages. So I grew up outside of any sort of wine culture. But when the Army drafted me, and fortunately the war had ended, and I just got over in time to help stack rubble, the water wasn't safe to drink, and so we had access to wine and beer, and I, to my surprise, I learned that I liked it. And so that was my first taste, my first experience with it. Then I came back to the United States and discovered that it wasn't as readily available here as it was in Europe. But nonetheless, I still began to pursue it. I had the good fortune to live fairly near Chicago, so I could get to restaurants and wine stores where wine was available. And so it gradually evolved as something I became used to and, and began to want. But then on subsequent jobs, some of which took me back to Europe as a civilian and some of which took me to Washington, D.C., my interest in it became more serious. So I would say that over the years, it's been probably my most consuming hobby, learning about wines, meeting the people who make wines, helping other people learn to use wines. And finally it paid off. Somebody at the Herald Times called one day and said, can you come in and talk to us about doing an online wine program? And Next thing I knew, Daniel, I'm hearing from you, and here I am. Well, what is it about wine that keeps you coming back or that has sustained this hobby into something now that you do as a job? Because there are so many wines and so many grape varieties and so many uses for wine, and wine historically, culturally, religiously has played such an important role in civilizing humanity and I like to point out that the most civilized cultures are those who have a tendency to become wine cultures, and the most uncivilized are just the opposite. Maybe an extreme statement, but I have found it to be a civilizing influence. But there's always something new to discover, a new grape variety, a new producer. It's a beverage one can talk about, one can drink it alone and meditate about it. One can share it with friends, something you don't do with a glass of milk or a glass of water or a soft drink. And it's a wonderful accompaniment to food, and it helps us eat our meals slowly and think more carefully about what we're going to eat. And uh, very few people who use wine on a regular basis fall into the obese category that we hear so much about these days. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people don't think Indiana uh, and wine together, but that's changing a bit. It has changed a lot, and it's changed really a lot in the last 10 or 12 years. 
as I said earlier on, as a child in Indiana, we took great pride in not being able to buy alcoholic drinks in Indiana or in some counties at any rate. Today there are, the last time I counted, 41 active wineries in Indiana. I hesitate because there's a new one opening all the time, <laughs> every once in a while. I would guess about 30 to 32 of them are actually open for commercial business and open to the public. The others are in various stages of development. Indiana wineries attract more than a million visitors a year and generate millions of dollars in tax and tourism revenue. And uh, wine has become the beverage of choice for most diners in the state of Indiana. You write a lot about Indiana wines. What is it about uh, our state? What what sort of uh, sets us apart from, from other states, from other countries that produce wine? Well, let me start by surprising you by saying the first commercial winery in the United States was in Indiana. It was down near the town of Vive. And it started around the turn of the last century, that is the beginning of the 19th century. And commercial wine was produced there right up until the days of Prohibition in, in the 1917-18 uh, time frame. But what sets it apart? Well, let's start by saying all wine regions are set apart by the soils in which they grow, by the climate in which they flourish or don't flourish. And Indiana has has a climate that's conducive to certain kinds of grape varieties. I like to say that uh, the great wine regions of the world are generally along riverbanks, the Rhone, the Rhine, the Ebro, the Po, the Ohio, and, of course, Bean Blossom Creek right here in Monroe County where Bill Oliver produces uh, some superb wines on vineyards right here in the northwest corner of Monroe County. So the soil is conducive to it, and the grape varieties that succeed here mostly know how to deal with the humidity and the insects and the uh, sometimes extremely cold winters and extremely hot, humid summers. So there is a uniqueness about them, and most of the successful grape varieties in Indiana are not the great vinifera wines that you find in Napa Valley or Bordeaux or Burgundy, though we are producing them in Indiana and producing them quite well. So the first commercial winery in America was in Indiana, and outside of California, the largest wine competition in America is the Indianapolis International Wine Fair held every summer. So a lot happens in the wine industry here in Indiana, and uh, we're rather proud of it. Well, you've seen it change quite a bit, you said, in the past decade or so. Where would you like to see it go in the next decade and maybe 50 years? <laughs> My first wish would be that our legislature would come to grips with the reality of the 21st century and communications media that help us learn about wines and allow us consumers to obtain the wines we want directly from producers. That would be my first goal, is to try to change those laws. Not to put anybody out of business. We we need distributors. We need wholesalers. We need the, the corporate handle on wines to keep them flowing because none of us on our own can access the variety that we really want. But there are some 10,000 new wines produced in the United States every year in every state in the country. I don't know how many are really imported from abroad, but... The consumer can buy only what the retailer can put on shelves. The retailer can put on shelves only what 
he can afford to buy from a wholesaler or what the wholesaler makes available to him. And so we consumers in Indiana are denied 95% of the wines produced in the country simply because there's not shelf space for them. And you're trying to change that. I am. Yeah. I'm active with a, with a small group of consumers. It's a growing group and a more interested group. And we have had a little bit of success with the, with the uh, legislators. But we find there's just too much um, legislative resistance to opening up the market to 21st century media. But what we've done with this legislation is created a kind of underground industry. Every serious wine consumer in Indiana has a computer or a television set, and they all know California is out there. They all know that there are wineries in the northern part of the state and the central part of the state that they can't get to very often. And so they're aware that those wines are out there. And one of the Indiana requirements is if you ever order wine directly from a producer, you must have visited that winery at least once and signed up with it. Well, we can't jump in the car and drive to Oregon or get on an airplane and fly to California, or we can't even get in our car and drive up near Valparaiso to get the wines of choice. Or if we live in Fort Wayne, we can't just drive down to Oliver anytime we want to pick up a case of wine. So what we're doing is finding out that, hey, I can order wine, and that producer out in California will respond in one of three ways. He'll say, I'm going to ship it in and nobody will know, which is likely. Not 100%, but it's likely. Or I'm not going to ship it at all because I don't want to risk losing my license. Or he'll say, here, I'll hand you the wine and you can do whatever you want to with it. Once you own it, it's yours. And there are attorneys who are prepared to say, if I own it in California, I have the right to ship it to me to my address. And then there are wine clubs who use retail outlets or they use uh, transportation systems to get the wine in. We're finding thousands and thousands of dollars worth of wine coming into the states through these various underground systems that could generate a lot of tax money if the state would only legalize the shipment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what started the uh, Al Capone Mafia gangs in Chicago was prohibition. You know, they found a way to make money as selling illegal booze. Well, you said you started getting into wine uh, right after the war, uh, but you don't have a, a formal wine education, right? You... I don't. I can truthfully say that I have never sold a bottle of wine. I've never worked a vineyard. I've never picked grapes. I've never been commercially involved with it at all. But I have met a lot of wine growers all the way from eastern Turkey to the Pacific Northwest in this country, all over the United States, all over France, Switzerland, Germany, Italy. I've never met a grumpy winemaker. <laughs> people who work hard and know that their product makes other people happy generally are very hospitable, very civilized, and, and very friendly people. I like to consider myself part of that that uh, life is good category. At the same time, professionals have been very, very helpful to me. Even some of the reps from the wholesalers who come around and sell wine to the stores here in, in Bloomington or around the state will take time and talk to me about wines and point out things that, that they know that I don't know. 
Same is true at the wineries. I love going out to Jim Butler's winery here because he's an encyclopedia of knowledge about wine and it's how it's produced and and what happens to it when certain insects hit and when the weather changes and that sort of thing. So I've never found anyone in the profession unwilling to be helpful, and I think that's part of being in the wine and hospitality business. Well, one of the things you do is you help out uh, the story in, in Brown County with uh, their wine list. And I saw on their website they refer to you as the pontiff of <laughs> Palette. Uh, that would sort of imply that it's, you're infallible. Uh, that's what uh, Rick Hostetter, the owner of the Story Inn, says. The Pope is infallible. I get a little nervous now when I read recent press reports about what's gone on in Munich over <laughs> the years. How infallible are we really? Well, uh, how did you earn that um, that nickname? Well, I think they bestowed that on me out at Story. Story is, a, I, I don't know if you've been there yet, Daniel, or not, but it, it's a unique place. It's a destination town. And the owner, Rick Hostetter, is a preservationist by interest and passion, and he's done wonders to preserve that pre-Civil War 1851 village out there. Turned it into a revenue-generating center for the county. He's one of the biggest employers in Brown County, and he's done it without changing the landscape, without changing the mood or the culture of the area. It's a place people can go and, and meet nature, have a good meal, have a snack, have a sandwich, have a drink. Uh, there's an art gallery where local artists, and I do mean real artists, people who have pro- professional credentials, sell paintings and jewelry and weavings and carvings and uh, interesting things. There are horse trails and places to, there will be places to board horses out there. So it's a combination of history, cuisine, wine, viticulture. Most of the food they serve in the uh, gourmet dining room is grown on the premises and the meats are locally sourced. So someone who who helps uh, advise them on their wine list or helps uh, build the wine list, how do you choose what goes on it? Do you want to emphasize Indiana's wines or do you want to – how do you go in there and do it? Tricky question. And it's tricky because just because I like a wine doesn't mean it's going to sell. A person who runs a restaurant or a retail store has to sell products in order to succeed. And my palate may be considerably different from the palate of the average consumer. There are a number of considerations one has to make. The retailers know that most consumers in Indiana are still evolving into using wine, and most of those palates still tend toward the sweet side of, of, of the wine wines available. And they'll all tell you, the Indiana producers, they'll all tell you that our biggest sellers come from fruit other than grapes. And yet, as people use these wines, and some of the, the fruit wines we make in Indiana are as good as any made anywhere in the country. They're, they're very good, very well made, and they hold up well, except they're not good food wines. And so, as I learned beginning with wine, sweet wines are easy to drink, they're pleasant, but when you really want to match them with a meal and you want to have two or three glasses with your meal, you want them to be a little drier. And so selecting wines, no matter where they come from, selecting wines according to one's own palate compared with what the retailer, the restaurant owner, the retailer needs to sell can be a tightrope to walk sometimes. Mm-hmm. And Indiana may still not 
sound quite as sexy as France or Italy or California when when you're looking at the labels, but it's getting there. Mm-hmm. As someone who expresses opinions and who, and who knows a lot about wine, how do you make sure you don't come across as a quote-unquote wine snob, or how do you make it more <laughs> accessible to people? Because it's an, an intimidating uh, topic. Mm-hmm. Well, there's not much you can do about wine snobs. And my attitude has been mostly I want to be helpful. And I try not to review very many specific wines as much as I uh, discuss wine issues. What's going on in the wine business? Uh, Are these insects out in California really going to have a devastating impact on the wine industry out there? Will we ever get these laws changed in Indiana? Um, Will the Indiana Wine Fair get rained out this year? You know, there are all sorts of things I like to write about. Once in a while, I'll pick up a special wine that I think has especially good value, and I'll use a little Alsace wine I bought at Kroger's not long ago that just blew my mind away. It was under $11, and I'm just not used to walking into a supermarket and getting a wine that's worth reviewing, but I called attention to it. Now, a real wine snob may not want to think about a supermarket wine being good, but that's not my role. My role is to try to educate about wine and try to make wine enjoyable. And I recognize that the biggest market for wines these days are young people, folks under 30. Uh, The older folks, even people my age, still remember the days when you would see a bottle of champagne or a bottle of Grand Bordeaux in the movies and think, boy, someday I'd like to live like that. And we still have those images in our heads of cruise ships and nightclubs and and men in tuxedos and women in formal gowns drinking fine wine, even during the 30s when Prohibition was, was barely over. But we're getting over that. And there aren't as many wine snobs per capita as there once was. Mm-hmm. Well, here at Profiles, we ask our guests to bring along uh, musical selections. Uh, right now, we're going to hear a piece by Sylvia McNair. Hi, welcome back to Profiles. We're speaking with Alan Dale Olson today. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. We just heard a piece from Sylvia McNair. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that piece? First, I'd like talk a little bit about Sylvia. You know, she's one of our 
our gal, even though she was born in Texas, you know, once she learned about that, she came to IU, even worked here in, in this studio, perhaps. I don't know her well. I've met her a couple of times, and she did a wonderful program for us out at Story. But knowing her connection with WFIU and knowing profiles and knowing her Indiana connections, I thought, well, I ought to think Indiana for music, but I do love her voice. And The Magic Flute is one of my favorite operas. And I was thinking about this interview and how I'm always trying to think of some magical something that will help me win the lottery or find the exact piece of wine I want. And then... Magic Flute came to mind, and then the particular aria on this disc has, um, I forget the character's name, testing her lover with silence. There's a test of silence involved, and she tries to speak to him, and he's unable to answer because he wants to pass the test, and then she feels that, that he no longer loves her. And so the beautiful notes and precision with which Sylvia sings this aria just strikes me, and I listen to it often. With this piece and in your wine writing, you're a champion of things Hoosier, and uh, you're from Indiana, right? I am. Uh, where were you born and where'd you grow up? I was born in what is now Portage, up in Lake Michigan, suburban to Chicago, really. At that time, it was very rural. It was farmland and dune land, and uh, we were 10 miles or so east of Gary, about halfway from Gary to Valparaiso. Portage today is a thriving city of fifty to 55,000 people. There were 28 graduates in my high school class. I think they graduated 1,028 a year or so ago. But that's where I grew up. So you hardly recognize it now. There's very little that I recognize. The house in which I was born is still there, but it's sandwiched in among developed, a developed area. The roads are paved. There are sidewalks. Roads weren't paved when I grew up. So how does that make you feel to see a familiar place, maybe a place you enjoyed growing up in, not resemble itself at all? The playwrights teach us you can't go home again, right? <laughs> <laughs> or they urge you to look homeward angel, you know, that sort of thing. And that's always been a matter of some interest to me. You Mostly in Europe, you go back to the same town in France or the same town in Germany, and you find families that have lived there for generations. Um, I've been in contact with a, a family I know in Riquevere, France, who have lived in the same village for 350 years. You don't find that much here anymore. And when I was finishing my doctorate at George Washington University a long time ago, my advisor said, well, you want to keep moving. He said, uh, if you um, don't think you should, each time you go back home, look who is still there. He said that somewhat scornfully, and yet some stability is the backbone of almost any community. But we are a nation that changes and changes fast, and the nostalgic pull I used to have it no longer exists because when I go back there, I don't know anybody anymore. Uh, the neighborhood has changed. The things that I loved and knew as a kid are gone. Um, but the town is prospering, so I can't wish it any other way. Well, you've lived in, and worked all over the world. Uh, so once you got out of Portage, or you graduated from Portage, you went to school and became a teacher. And did you go back to Portage and begin teaching there? I did. When I came back from the Army, I went back to Portage as a basketball coach. 
I had played basketball. Little guys could play basketball in the mm-hmm. 1940s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember not long ago at a game at IU, and IU had one of the shortest players in, in the Big Ten, and I happened to be able to stand down on the floor while the team was warming up. And every time this shortest kid in the Big Ten ran by me, I had to look up at him. <laughs> <laughs> so I played basketball there. So when I came out of the Army... In those days, draftees had job rights to get back to places. I did not take the same job I had left when I got drafted. But I was hired as an assistant coach to the high school coach I had had in uh, high school. We didn't do very well and uh, had a losing season. And in Indiana, a losing season means you look for something else. And I had an opportunity to take a job overseas. And so... That's about as far as I could get from that gymnasium where we had our losing season. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't spend too much time on basketball or else I'll probably get in trouble, but uh, (laughs) what kind of player were you? Were you a guard? Did you have a good shot? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was a guard. What was uh, your best uh, skill? Uh, Stealing the ball, defense, uh, getting knocked down, driving for the basket. Mm -hmm. Those those were my skills. You could hit some free throws then? I was good at free throws. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very good at free throws. But uh, you weren't a teacher in Portage for very long, right? No. You went overseas at some point. One year I I got picked up to be a teacher in the uh, U.S. Defense Department dependent schools. The particular segment I was in happened to belong to the Air Force. They were run by the Air Force with schools at that time in Turkey, Germany, France, and England. And they sent me to Turkey where I learned to coach soccer. And, of course, taught basketball and P.E. and a couple of academic subjects because the uh, school was small and they needed teachers who could cover several subjects. But that got me started again in an overseas life as a civilian. And I became a school principal for a couple of years over there and then decided I'd had enough fun for a while and had the opportunity to take a job in Washington, D.C. for the National Education Association. Mm-hmm. And you worked alongside, rubbed elbows with some important people there. Yeah, I was uh, I was fortunate there. The uh, phone rang one day at uh, during the lunch hour in the NEA building, and it was a call from Vice President Humphrey's office, wanting to know if they could talk to somebody about Teaching Career Month, which was a special project of the NEA. The NEA hadn't become a really active teachers' union in those days. It was still considered something that teachers should belong to for professional reasons and academic reasons. So uh, the operator knew I was at my desk and transferred the call to me, and I began talking to the caller, and he said, hey, do you have a few minutes you could come down to the executive office building and talk to the vice president? So when the vice president of the U.S. says, can you come down and talk for a few minutes? So I hustled right down there and Hubert Humphrey uh, teased me about being a Swede, not living in Minnesota, and you know he was from mm-hmm. Minnesota. And uh, we talked a bit, and I invited him to come talk to the NEA staff, and he did. And during the course of his visits, and a lot of other people, I had very little to do with that. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson uh, called a White House conference on education and brought in school superintendents and school board members and legislators and governors from all over the state. I was privileged to be a part of that. And I also have to put a plug in for our daughter. Our daughter was born right before the Kennedy assassination. And 
my wife and I were members of St. John's Episcopal Church at Lafayette Square, right across from the White House. And the weekend of the Sunday services, right after the assassination, when we came to services, uh, we were aware that the Secret Service was there, which wasn't uncommon because that's been known as the Church of the Presidents well, since the middle of the 19th century. But once we were in the auditorium, the Secret Service made us all stay put, and President and Mrs. Johnson came in for services. But wouldn't you know it, our little year-and-a-half-old daughter got fussy during the service, and so I stood up with her to go out of the auditorium, and immediately Secret Service people followed me, and we went out in the atrium. They wouldn't let me go back in at that point. And one of the there were two of them, Secret Service guys. One of them said, let me hold her for a while. So he held her, and then services ended, and the other Secret Service guys told everybody to be calm and stay seated while the president and his lady came out. And when they came through the atrium, the president looked down at uh, at our daughter and me, and he said, cute baby. And he reached his big hands out and picked her up and looked at her. He said, mighty cute baby, handed her back to me. And mm. out they went. So I can always say, hey, our daughter got picked up by the president of the United States. But he didn't kiss the baby. No. <laughs> <laughs> I used to read evening prayer there, which was kind of an anachronism too, but one day a week they had somebody volunteer at five o'clock to go down and read evening prayer at the at the church. And we were told, put on the vestments, read and if nobody comes, read anyway. And very seldom did anybody come. Everybody at five o'clock in Washington's anxious to get home. But one evening I was at the lectern, facing the west, sun streaming in through the, the rose window and the open door. So the auditorium's in darkness. The door would open. You'd see the sunshine out there. You could see the sun through the window. And I was aware that four or five people came in. I could hear the footsteps and the coughing and the scraping as they went to the pews. It made me a little nervous. So I started reading, and a voice boomed back the response. I'd read. Response would come back. It was a familiar voice. I'd read, response would come back. I knew that voice, but I couldn't identify it. Finished the reading, ended the prayer, closed the book, and the people went out. I could see the sun through the open door and the silhouettes going out. And as I turned to leave the uh, altar area, a young man was standing there, crew cut, suit and tie. And he said, the president would like to thank you for evening prayer. Lyndon Johnson had come over from the White House, and he had boomed the response back to, to the lectern. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I had some interesting experiences, even in our nation's capital. Mm -hmm. What was it like working and in, in being in Washington during the, the Vietnam War? And during Johnson's presidency, well, I wasn't in Washington during the Vietnam War. I was there during the as as it was just getting started. Okay, okay. and the protests were just beginning. Um, and as I said, I was there during the Kennedy assassination. The really serious protests were only in their infancy, and I left Washington in 1967 to go back overseas. At that time, the partisanship we see now in the political parties was in its infancy also. I would say that back in the 50s, the Eisenhower years, the early Kennedy years, we didn't have quite the blind partisanship that we see so often today. 
that was to change, and Vietnam was a big factor in that. It was more touching when I went back to Europe. This time I went back to work directly for the U.S. Department of Defense and on the Army staff over there to see, make friends and colleagues with people who six months later would be in Vietnam and occasionally you'd get word that they'd been shot up or wounded or even killed. And the agony that our career servicemen felt in that war, they felt it was a war they wanted to win could not win. In some cases, they said we weren't allowed to win it, most extreme cases. Uh, so it was very trying and often very tense to talk about Vietnam. But I have to say, our military leaders during that time, they would go to the chapel almost every evening and, and pray for the wounded. And this was in Europe now, where I was. So we didn't see the action. But they felt very much the pain and the losses of that war and never felt they had quite the political support that the war deserved. You want us to go to war? Support us. Don't want us to go to war? Then keep us out. You know? So you left Washington in 1967. 67. And you went back overseas to work. I went work back to Europe. Mm -hmm. With the military? I, um, I worked for directly for the U.S. Defense Department schools in their superintendents. I was what they'd call the chief of staff for the superintendent of the schools. Many Americans didn't realize this, but the Defense Department had the seventh largest United States school system. We had over 110,000 kids at one time in schools from sub-Saharan Africa to the Arctic Circle, from Bahrain on the Persian Gulf all the way to Rota on the western coast of Spain. And so somebody had to look after those schools, and so I had to occasionally go off to Ethiopia and off to um, uh, the Sudan and off to Spain. And it was more fun going to London and Paris and <laughs> Madrid and places like that. It was a great job. And we had the most exciting teachers in the world. They'd come from practically every district in the United States, principals too. And we worked for, for the children of the military people assigned to Europe. Well, I'd like to uh, speak more about that, but uh, first we'll get to your second musical selection. This is Colm Wilkinson singing a selection from Les Miserables. Welcome back to Profiles. We're speaking with Alan Dale Olson today. Before uh, we listen to the musical selection, we were speaking a little bit about uh, you going back uh, overseas to work with the uh, U.S. military schools. And you went 
all over the world than uh, well Europe. Yes. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And so, what did you do? Did you just have to manage the education that the, <laughs> the children of U.S. soldiers and generals were, were getting? Fortunately, I didn't have to do much management, and my job title and my job uh, structure changed several times over the twenty years or so that that I was doing that. But a lot of the functions remained the same. My primary function was to serve as a liaison between the family policy staff of the U.S. Army Commander-in-Chief in Heidelberg for Europe and the schools to try to help the Army professionals understand the needs of the school professionals and vice versa and to make sure that the military engineers programmed in their construction plans school facilities and support school facilities. And one of the more interesting aspects, and there's where I used Indiana to good advantage, when uh, the U.S. forces left France as a result of, of President de Gaulle withdrawing from the military arm of NATO. He didn't withdraw from NATO. That's a misconception a lot of Americans have. France stayed in NATO. He just withdrew from the military arm. We had to move military assets from France into Belgium and Germany and the Netherlands. And it was a lot of fun working with representatives from the other NATO nations and even from our own among our own three services to do that. But a decision was made somewhere at the command level that we would do some experimental schooling and we established multinational schools at Chafe headquarters near Brussels and at Afsen headquarters in Limburg province of the Netherlands. This meant that in the Netherlands we were putting students from four different nations in one school building and in Shape we were putting kids from almost a dozen different nations in one school building. The logistics were interesting in that we had memoranda of understanding from each nation about the amount of money and the amount of personnel they would provide. Each national unit had its own core curriculum, but then programs that could be jointly taught, languages, art, music, for example, sports, were. And one of the more interesting uh, problems we had was the U.S. wanted more gymnasium time than the Europeans. Europeans use a gymnasium for physical education. They go down, do calisthenics, and then they go back to class. The U.S., you know, we play basketball. We play volleyball. (laughs) We play sports competitively. We have teams and intramural leagues. And I was constantly arguing with the head of the Dutch school, the head of the British school, the head of the French school. Your school takes too much time in the gymnasium, both boys and girls. What is this? So I wrote home quickly and said, send me some copies of the Herald Times, send me some copies of the Brownstown Banner and the Seymour Tribune. And I showed how a little town newspaper could have six or eight pages devoted to high school sports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't realize how important this is to Americans. These sports programs in, in Europe are largely run by the towns, by the communities, not by the schools. Mm-hmm. So when did you come back uh, to America and what, what called you back here? Well, age probably more than anything else. Our parent, both my wife's mother and my parents, were becoming of a certain age, and they have since passed since we moved back here. We came back in the winter of 1994, settled out there in the Hoosier National Forest, about halfway from Bloomington to Seymour, if you go diagonally across there. And I've had a wonderful time ever since. We're very close to story, which is how we happened to fall into friendship with uh, with uh, Rick out there at that story. 
why did you come back to Indiana? Because you've been all over the world. And you can take Indiana or the boy out of Indiana, but you can't take Indiana out of the boy, I guess. Right. Well, we always thought we needed to be back near our parents. Her mother lived still up there in the Portage area, moved to South Bend shortly before she died, and my parents had moved down here into Jackson County. So that, And my wife is an IU girl, and she always wanted to be near Bloomington. Well, how did you meet your wife? When did you meet her? When we were teaching in Portage. That I may have lost the basketball season that year, but I won a wonderful wife, and she's been with me and patient with me ever since. And thank goodness for her. She liked wine when she first met it, and she liked cooking, and she went off and studied cooking with some of the greatest chefs in France. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I eat very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, getting back to, to wine a bit, we talked a lot about it in the first part of the show but uh, what is the, I guess, best bottle of wine you've ever had or what the most expensive or what is the bottle you talk about? Those are, are different questions, so I'll answer them separately. Sure. The best bottle of wine I ever had was uh, 1989. I was sitting in a restaurant in Bordeaux and felt some discomfort in, internally hurried away from the restaurant back to our hotel. By the time I reached our hotel, I was in miserable pain. Middle of the night, hotel concierge called a doctor who came to the hotel room, by the way. Try try that in the United States. He thought maybe appendicitis, said we must get you to a hospital. So I went to a nearby hospital and made brand tests for three or four hours and determined I had peritonitis. My appendix had broken. Emergency surgery, um, almost a week in intensive care and and more treatment, and finally released to go back to our home in Heidelberg, Germany, so long as I would not do the driving. They wanted to send me in an ambulance, but we had a car down there. Joan said, well, I can drive. Doctor looked dubious, but he said carefully and slowly, So we left Bordeaux about 10 o'clock in the morning, and about noon we were going through a small village, and she said, I'm going to stop at that grocery store and get something to eat. I hadn't had any really solid food for almost 10 days. And I said, don't forget the wine. She came back to the car with a bottle of rosé from a little domain, Montpenas. I've never heard of it before or since. I probably would find today the wine rather insipid, but it was my first sip of wine in about 10 days, as I said. And I often call that the best bottle of wine I've ever had. She only paid something like 2 or $3 for it. Mm-hmm. Most expensive bottle of wine has a somewhat more sordid story. Do tell. But somewhere <laughs> along the way, I made the acquaintance of a Swedish expatriate living in Paris who made a living buying up old wines from chateaus and restaurants where the families had either died off or had gone out of business. And then he would sell them for whatever he could get for them. And periodically he would send me a pencil-written list of wines, and he always wanted paid in cash, no receipts, please. And I suspect if 
if I had really known the dubious origins of where he got these bottles, I would have kept my distance. But one day I said to him, if you ever get a 1945 Chateau Lafitte Rochelle, I'd love to have one. I'll keep that in mind. A year or so later, he sent a notice that he had six bottles. He wanted then about 500 francs for each of them. That would have been roughly $100. I emphasize 1945. That not only was the year World War II ended in Europe, but 1945, coincidentally, was one of the greatest vintages of all time. People in France still refer to the 1945 vintage as the Vin de la Victoire, the wine of victory. God blessed us with this wonderful harvest after this horrible war has ended. So to shorten the story, he sent me the list. I told him I'd take one. Next time in Paris, come to this address and pick it up. So the next time I was in Paris, I went to the flat where... I rang the bell, and a lady in a housecoat came out. Didn't open the door all the way. I told her who I was and why I was there. Just a minute. She disappeared, came back with a bottle with a tag on it with my name on it. The money, handed her the money, door shut. It's the last I ever saw him or had any contact with him. Took the bottle back to our home in Heidelberg, put it in our cellar, wondering what on earth are we going to do with it. One bottle, when will we use it? One of the greatest wines, if not in actual quality, certainly in the mythology and lore of great wines. Mm -hmm. And I began asking anybody I thought who might know, great wine stewards in, in fine restaurants in France, even asked Robert Mondavi. I spent some time with him, both in California and in, in France. The answer was always the same. Well, you should open it when I can be there. <laughs> <laughs> but time passed, and we recognized that we would soon be coming back to America, and we didn't know if that wine could stand a 4,000-mile trip or not. Which friends will we invite? What should we? Our daughter had gone off to college, married, and was back here in the States. So we decided one night, um, this is it. Took the phone off the hook, pulled the shades down. We'd prepared the wine a day or two ahead so that all the stood it up so all the sediment would settle. Ran it through cheesecloth decanter, make sure that the crumbled cork was out, poured it out for ourselves, and just had a wonderful time with that wine. It was superb. And I have since learned that we probably could have sold that bottle at that time for anywhere from 900 to $1,100. So I have to say that's probably the most expensive bottle <laughs> we've ever had. It tasted pretty good. It tasted wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Just mm -hmm. think, these grapes were harvested, the first harvest after World War II ended. And, mm -hmm. and that's the year you had your first taste. It was a little later than that when oh, I got okay. to Europe, but it was close. <laughs> Well, uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the program. My pleasure, Daniel. You ask good questions. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, we're going to go out on your final selection here, a song by Bloomingtonian Joshua Bell. He's playing, I think, one of the most beautiful melodies I've ever heard. It's the meditation from Thais. I think it's a great way to end almost anything.
The program you just heard was recorded in March of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.